All right, we're going to head into the Gospel of Mark today. We've been, this is 12 weeks in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to change a little things in your bulletin, just kind of some different things came out last night, so your bulletin might look a little bit different today, just to warn you. Uh, we've been walking through this book with this lens of a servant heart, kingdom mind. These are, these are aspects of Jesus that we see very present in his life. He's got a kingdom mind, he's got a servant heart, and, and we have walked through some extraordinary pieces of scripture that have revealed the nature and the character of who God is. They've talked about when Jesus' ministry began, they've talked about his miracles that he's performed and why he performed those miracles. We've seen this extraordinary care and love that he has for the readily rejected in our culture. He meets people's needs. We've seen him show us just the need to get away from things. Like Jesus just often goes in his boat by himself sometimes just to replenish himself in his time on earth, just to be with his father alone and just how important that is. And then we've just watched Christ so gently and beautifully challenge perspective along the way. He asks really profound questions that engage his disciples and the crowd in, in a debate, in, in, in a conversation, in a dialogue that he uses to begin to mold and renew people's brains. And so it's just been a beautiful journey here. Jesus is changing the way that we think. One time in scripture, he asked this question, and this is a galvanizing moment in Jesus's ministry. He asked a question to his disciples, who is it that you say that I am? And Peter jumps up, one of the disciples, and says, you are the Christ. And from that moment, we see a difference in the ministry of Christ. He no longer is concerned about signs and wonders, but he is now communicating the cost of what it means to follow him. There are things that are harder to heal than some of the fun miracles that we see in Jesus, but Jesus is going to be very straight with his disciples that there is a cost that's going to be inflicted on them for following him. Prior to that, Jesus has spent most of his time enacting miracles and signs and wonders to get his disciples and people in the crowd to see him as the son of God. And now that they see him, He's turning up the temperature a little bit, and he's saying, hey, there's more than just spectating here. There's a cost to following. And so in my kingdom, Jesus says, your greatness is not going to be defined by winning, by status, by success, but rather by losing, by serving, by denying those are the values of my kingdom. And it is completely different than the kingdom of the world that you live in. My kingdom says the last will be first and the first will be last. It is an upside down kingdom that Jesus brings to us and it changes everything. And maybe you have been in here and we've, as we've walked through these hard scriptures where Jesus says, hey, I need you to deny yourself, carry your cross, follow me, lose, servant of all. Maybe you've heard these things and there has been a grind on your heart, on your soul, on your way, like, ah, that is hard. And I would just say to you, don't ignore the tension that it creates. That is the word of God, the living spirit pushing into your life to challenge your perspective and to create in you new desires. We are to respond to that. Don't ignore it. Don't deny it. Live in that tension. Figure out what the Lord is calling you to. Maybe you ask the question, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody deny, lose, serve? Why, why would anybody just refuse the right to kind of 
pursue my own happiness, my own comfort, my own measures in life, my own success? Why would anybody reject those things and serve Christ in this way? Well, I, I think to understand why one would do that, it's important that we reflect on the most crucial question that any human being must evaluate in their life. And that question is, is what is my only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? What does this life mean? What is my purpose? What on earth am I here for? Is it just about me eking out some sort of existence, making some money, finding something that makes me happy, watching the, the greatest and latest Netflix flicks, uh, show on a, on a binge watch? Is it about me finding a fulfilling career, having some kids, doing some fun things there? Let's go to King's Island. That's going to be good. Is it about me finding an age to retire and then settling down and maybe my golf is the, the rest of my life? Is that what life is? Is that what I'm supposed to pursue? Well, as a Christian, we have the only answer to this question. What's my only hope in life and death? And the answer to that question is that you are not your own, but you belong to God. You are not your own, but you belong to God. The Lord paid a price for you. He bought you, all of you, body, spirit, heart, everything on the cross. He owns you. And he is our only hope in this life and in death. You were not some accident of two amino acids passing by each other in a swamp. You were created by a loving God with reason and purpose and identity. You matter to him. And so the basic motive of our life, and, and I'm going to pull this from a, a, from a thing called the New City Catechism. Um, I, I want to recommend that to you guys. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with what a catechism is. If, if you are in a Catholic background, you probably have known the word catechism, but a catechism is simply just something that lists the most basic doctrine of Christian belief. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a catechism called the New City Catechism that brings down 52 questions that are essential to our faith, and they break it down for kids too. So my, my daughter and I, we sit in her bed at bedtime, and I sing, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. That's the only time I'm singing, right? <laughs> and so I just want to recommend that to you guys as a way to kind of get some grasp on the basic tenets of the Christian faith, especially for you with family and those who are single. Everybody, this would be a good thing. But the basic moment, motive that we see that, that we, they talk about in this catechism is that God sent his son to save us by grace. And in that grace, he adopts us as family. That God has called you son and daughter. He's called you son and daughter. And so now because of his grace, in our gratitude, in our love for him, we begin to resemble the father. We want some sort of family resemblance. We, we want to look like our savior. We want to please our father. That's our basic motive in life. Out of gratitude for what he, he has done for us. We are not our own. That we have a desire to look more like him. And the basic principle is this, is that we are not to live to please ourselves. We are not to live to please ourselves. We don't live as if we belong to ourselves. That means several things. It means that, first of all, we are not to determine for ourselves what is right or wrong. We are to give up that right 
and determine what is right and wrong by the Word of God and by His Spirit. We are also to give up the operating principle that we live day in and day out that says, I'm going to put myself first in all cases. But rather, as a believer, we put what pleases God first in all situations, in all things. What pleases God and what loves our neighbors. We put those things first. And it means this, that there is no part of you in this life that is not immune to self-giving. There's not an ounce of you that the Lord does not say, you've got to keep that for your own. As a Christian, we have to have and acknowledge that everything that we have has to be given away to the Savior, has to be given away to God. We are supposed to give to Him all that we have, our heart and our soul. And that means that we trust God through thick and thin, through good times and bad, in life and in death. Because we are saved by grace. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. God is our only hope in life and death. And we choose out of the delight in our hearts, out of his spirit moving in our lives, to gratitude, in gratitude, to align ourselves up with his will and his purposes, in his beauty, in his way. That is our desire as a Christian. And so I, I want us to have that right perspective because it will guide us. If you don't have that perspective, all of this stuff will seem like a pile of rubbish. It helps us trust that Jesus is who he says he is. He is good, even though things are hard. Because we know as believers that this life of sacrifice and denying and carrying crosses and losing and serving is far more flourishing and, and sustaining and rich than anything that this world would give to us. So we are not our own, but we belong to God. And so we can say, okay, Lord, yes. I don't want that anymore. I will deny that because I want to be like you. I want to serve you. Yes, Lord, I will suffer in this moment. I don't understand it, but I'm going to walk with you because I trust you. Lord, I'm going to serve here even though I'm not going to get anything back because I believe in you. And so I want us to have that perspective, especially when we talk about hard things. And today we are going to talk about hard things because Jesus is even going to become more blunt as he heads to the cross. Jesus is walking in Mark 9 to the cross, and he's going to get blunt with what eternity means. He says that at the end of all of this that we know, that there is a judgment that awaits us, that every one of us will have an account to be told to Jesus. And we should live with that judgment in mind. And so we're going to look into Mark 9 today. You can read it in your bulletin, and we'll read it on the screen here together. Mark 9, starting in verse 42. Jesus' words, he says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to, if a giant great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter in the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire 
is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. And so the overall message in this passage is very simple, but it's very hard at the same time. Jesus is saying that with eternity in mind, be careful how you live and be careful of how you live together. With eternity in mind, be careful how you live and be careful how you live together. So look, it's never fun to have a conversation about hell. I don't wake up in the mornings going, hey, when can I talk about hell? Maybe this is your first time at this church and you're going, is this the hell church? Do they talk about this every week? Yes, we do. Every week. No, we don't. Uh, I wouldn't advise using the question, well, tell me your thoughts about hell as some way to break the ice at a party or a date. Probably not going to get an invite back to that. Listen, we have to have this conversation. We have to have this conversation. Guys, your kids, kids in this culture, nobody believes that they're going to hell. Nobody believes that it's an innate, real possibility that somebody could go to hell. If you uh, would ask somebody, are you going to go to hell? What, what, what do you think? What, what are they going to say? I'm, no. But yet in Scripture it says this, that the road to destruction is broad and wide, and many will follow it. Yet the path of righteousness is narrow, and few will find it. We have to have this conversation. It's important that we have right thinking about our eternity. What are your ideas about hell? I even feel weird saying it from the stage. <laughs> like I've been for hell. I just can't. What are your thoughts about it? In culture, we have this idea that hell is this kind of cartoonish place that has lots of fire, and there's this guy with two horns and a trident with a snarly <laughs> grin, and it's almost been like pacified. Like that is something to laugh at. But it's not something to laugh at. There are elements that are true, I, sort of, in that depiction, but not really. And so what does the word say about this place we call hell? Well, what we know is that hell is a place that's completely absent of the presence of God. God being holy and right glorious, cannot be in the presence of disobedience and sin. He's that awesome. And so hell is a place that is completely separate from the presence of God. Some people like to stop at that definition and say that hell, yes, God is not there, but it's a place that's neither neutral. It's neutral. It's neither bad nor good. And, and, and this kind of thinking leads people into this kind of mentality of like, well, if all my friends are going to go there, then, you know, that's where I want to be. You can crack open a few beers and that, looking down on us, that's, that's kind of that mentality of hell, that it's neither good nor bad. God's not there, but we're going we're gonna to be there together and that's going to be awesome. Is that true? No. Are some elements true? Yes, God is not there. But when we read pieces of scripture like this, we read a different account of what hell looks like. It's not just the absence of God. It's a place of disgrace and torment. 
It's not a place that, that anyone would want to go. Um, in this scripture, we see verses like the worm never dies. Anybody want to be in places where worms never die? The fire is not quenched. Uh, this is not a place to be. The Greek word that we translate into this word hell is uh, Gehenna. Gehenna. And it would have Jesus, that's what Jesus is, when, you, when I say hell, Jesus is saying Gehenna to these people. And what that word would mean would be something important to these people that would hear it. Gehenna is, is a historical place that we can read about in our Old Testament. It is, it is the Valley of Hinnom. And in that history, we would feel, see it full of a history of disobedience and unfaithfulness especially in the Israelite kings. The Israelite kings in that valley in Judea at that time, they began to practice and follow after a, god, a false god named Molech. And in following that, they began to do some demonic, pagan rituals that included infant and child sacrifice. And the Lord was not pleased, to say the least. And so he raises up the nation of Babylon and he crushes his people for their rebellion for their disobedience, for their pagan ways. Some 70 years later, the Israelites return to this valley and they resettle it and they repurpose this valley and give it the name Gehenna and they repurpose this disgusting, filthy place where they disobeyed God into a place where they put the bodies of criminals, dead animals, refuge of all, refuse of all sorts, burning Flesh, it was a, think of a landfill, times 10, dead bodies burning. Isaiah records it in his book that, that the smell was putrid. Putrid. It's a place that's filthy. Nobody would be there. Nobody in their right mind would want to be in this place. It's a place where the ner worms never stopped crawling and the fires never ceased burning. And so that is the place that Jesus is talking to about when he's talking about eternity in hell. That's what he's trying to get them to equate with what hell is. Not a place that anybody wants to go, anybody would ever choose to be. And Jesus is saying in this passage that we should do some pretty drastic things to avoid that reality in our life. And so I think that many of us have, you know, I, we know that, that that is not a place that we want to be. We don't want to go to that place, but we have this belief that, that hell is reserved for those people who are especially bad, the people who are just grossly ignorant of human decency and value. Those people like Hitler and, and Charles Manson, hell is a place for people like them, not for people like me. We have this belief that in our lives, that if someone, at the end of my life, if my goodness outweighs my badness, then that is not a place that I would ever go. But is that what the scriptures would say to us? It's about you balancing your goodness and your badness. No, it's not what scripture would say to us. What we know from scripture is this, is that hell is not a place where God sends those who have been especially bad. Rather, it is our default destination in which God redeems us from. It is our default destination in which God redeems us from. Through Adam, 
the inherent leaning towards sin entered into the world and human beings became sinners by nature. When Adam sinned in the garden, when he disobeyed God, his inner nature was transformed by his sin of rebellion, bringing spiritual death and depravity into his life, which is passed down on all who have come after him, including ourselves. Listen, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Sin is any action or thought that is short of God's will. It is any action or thought that is short of God's will. And so God is perfect, and anything that we do that falls short of his perfection is sin. Our relationship with God was fractured, and we can still feel this today. We can sense the ripple effects of the brokenness because of sin in our culture today. It doesn't look, take a genius to look in our world and say, what happened? Hatred and strife and disease and rebellion, hunger and starvation and death. This is not what the Lord had intended. And it doesn't take long to look in ourselves to sense that brokenness in our soul that something is off. We once walked fully with the Lord and it was fulfilling and satisfying and all sorts of great things. But we are broken bodily and humanly because of sin. We are separated with God on earth. And without Jesus, listen, without Jesus, we will remain separated from God in eternity. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we gain wholeness with God, right standing with God, because God took all of your stuff, all of your sin, all of your disobedience, and he poured it onto Jesus, and he crushed him, and then he raised him back from the dead, and by your faith, he credits to you Jesus' righteousness as your own. He doesn't see you in your sin. He sees the perfection of his son in you, on you. You are hidden in Christ. And so without Jesus in our lives, we are doomed to hell. It is not a balance of goodness versus badness. It's about a relationship, a relationship that transform, transforms our life. And so with eternity in mind, friend, be careful with how you live and be careful of how you live together. Jesus says, when you surrender your life. He is going to set within you a new heart and a new spirit. And in that new heart and new spirit, he is going to push upon you new desires, new ways, new thoughts that are going to try to push out and push against your fleshly desire, your worldly desire. And I would say to you, friends, don't don't hate the tension of knowing that you're falling short according to the standard of God. Don't hate the tension of knowing that I'm not pleasing God. Lean into it. The Lord is creating desires in you to try to kill off what he doesn't want. Don't reject it. He uses his word and his spirit to change you, to make you new every day. And sometimes we just fight it and we forget it and it feels like condemnation. The Lord is not condemning you. He's loving you because he's trying to make you more and more like him along the way. That there is a goal that is set in front of us, and it is the perfection of Jesus. I, I know that that seems high, 
that the standard that we are striving for is the perfection of Christ. And I don't know if we'll ever get there. I would say that we're not going to ever get there. But that doesn't mean that we don't try everything that we have to get there. And Jesus says in this passage, if that even means you cutting off your hands and your feet and gouging out your eyes, then you should do that. In this piece of scripture, he uses the hands and the feet and the eyes to kind of represent this, this carnal desire that we have in flesh to do things that are opposite of God. The hand would be like the violence. The sword is in your hand. Uh, feet are, are running into uh, tre- tre- trespasses and, and sin, uh, being with a corrupt company. Uh, your eyes covet what you don't have. They make you see things and hate things and be envious of things. The Lord says that we, we uh, amongst the things that the Lord classifies as something that defiles us as an evil eye. And so in this scripture, Jesus is using a hyperbole to bring to you some shocking realities of how far we should go to remove sin from our life. A hyperbole is not something meant to t- be taken literally, but yet it's there to bring greater understanding and urgency to the effect that we need to pursue after. And the greater urgency, understanding, and effect that we are pursuing is that we would not see sin as benign and harmless. That is a great mistake in our lives, but rather something that could affect your salvation. And so Jesus is quite clear here in his desire for you to get rid of your sin. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to argue with it. He wants you to starve it. Don't argue with your sin. Starve it. Starve it. It is not benign. It is not harmless. We have to kill the evil will by the Spirit of God in us, pushing new realities, pushing new desires in us. It is not something in this carnal evil desires that we should play around with. We should not give our members over to sin. We should not give our desires over to sin because we are playing games with something that could cost us our eternity. And it would be better to be maimed and enter into the kingdom of God than to face judgment. There's a story that I just think speaks so accurate to the ills of sin. And I've said this before, it's one of Aesop's fables, a fable about a scorpion and a frog. That there is a scorpion and a frog on one side of the creek. Scorpions and frogs, they do not get along. They are sworn enemies of the other, although the frog really can't do anything to the scorpion. The scorpion's job is simply, they are designed to kill frogs. And so these two enemies are on the side of the shore, and and the, the scorpion looks at the frog and says, hey, can you give me a ride on your back across this creek? And the frog's like, yeah, no thank you. Stay your distance, my man. And the the scorpion's like, listen, man, listen, listen, listen. I'm not going to sting you, okay? Look at me. I'm not going to do that this time. I just need to get, I got some things to do over there. Need to get across. And the frog's like, I'm not having it. And then the scorpion heightens up. Listen, if I get on your back, we get across the creek, and I rise up and I sting you, you'll die. But guess who else is going to die? I can't swim. I'm going to die too. So why would I do that? And so the frog begins to rationalize. Oh, you know what? He makes a valid point here. So he lets the scorpion get on his back. They start across the water. They get halfway. And what do you know? The scorpion raises up, stings the frog. And as the frog is dying, he turns to the scorpion and says, 
what did you do? And the scorpion just looked at him and said, I'm a scorpion. It's what I do. I kill frogs. Sin is the scorpion. There is no way to justify and rationalize it in our lives. All it does is kill and destroy us. And we should not expose our members and our desires to sin. We should not live in that manner. We should be careful in the way that we live. We have to seek to kill sin at its root. And that is only done through the Spirit of God creating new desires, giving us a new heart and a new spirit, and leaning into it, trusting in the voice of God. This passage is not saying that if you're a Christian and you sin, you're going to hell. On the cross, Jesus died for your sins, past, present, and future. The question isn't about that you sin. The question is, why would you? What you Jesus, why would you want to sin when you have the glorious riches of Christ? It's, we are not to present ourselves in a way that we give way to the desires of sin. We are to, to see ourselves as new creation, that we are dead to those things, that we, we may sin, but we say, that's not what I want, and we kill it. We say, I don't want to be a part of that. Get away from me. This passage is saying we should not continue to live as people who are conquered by sin, but yet people who are conquered by the love and the grace of Christ. And so we're to let his desires and his, his ways change our heart. We're, we're to cut off, starve, and kill everything that hinders us in looking more and more like Jesus and anything that is impeding us from looking like Christ. We kill, we don't argue. Does not have a, sin does not have grand plans for your success. It has grand plans for your failures. And so in our desire to live a life for God, we cut off all that is destroying our lives in sin. And we should be careful of how we live this life. Jesus, in this passage, says that we need to be careful then on how we interact with each other. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better if for him to have a great millstone wrapped around his neck and thrown into the sea. A millstone was this giant stone that these donkeys would move that would crush grain. And Jesus is saying, don't hurt and corrupt one of my little ones here, or it would be better for you to put that around your neck and go into the sea and what's implied than to meet me in judgment someday. And when Jesus says little ones, he's not talking about children necessarily. He's talking about those who are young in their faith, those who are just starting out in their faith, who are trying to figure this out, that we should allow them the opportunity, much like the disciples had, to learn the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. So many times we have mature Christians that come into people's life with their own perspective on Scripture that's not right and try to put on people a yoke, a way that that's not what God has for them right now. God is trying to help them see who he is and we need to encourage people love them pray for them root them on in their life that God would grow them that we don't put this ridiculous weight on them but we would allow God's spirit to move them look we say this it's okay not to be okay it's just not okay to stay there and we should respect how the spirit is moving in people's lives and so we are to be concerned about how we're interacting with people 
that we would be all about owning our own stuff, cutting off our own sin. And listen, it's easier to cut off somebody else's arm, right, than it is to cut off our own. That would be our first desire. I'm going to cut your hand off because you're bothering me. This is you. You worry about your own stuff. You cut off your hand. And he says to be salt. Salt is a preserving agent in, in this culture. It is today. They would not have had refrigeration. Salt is the means of preservation. They would just wrap their meat and salt in a little sand, and that would preserve it. And so that's what, what that's saying is you as Christian are a preserver of this world. You're keeping it from going rotten. And there is a flavor that you should protrude in your life. When people rub up against you, when they taste you, don't let people lick you, literally. But when you interact with them, when you come in contact with them, there should be a flavor that is about you that's different than anything that they have ever had in this world. Jesus is different than anything that we've ever seen. And we should taste and look like Christ. When people would come in contact, they would say, something is different about that guy. Something is different about him. That person is different. And so friends, there comes a moment in everyone's life where they have to stop looking at Jesus through the lens of a consumer and see him in the lens of a savior. A consumeristic faith sees Jesus as worthy, but only as worthy to what makes my life better that I want to add Jesus into my life, I want to add him to my resume in only ways that make my life here on earth seem better, richer, and fuller. We have to make the transition. God calls us to make the transition into seeing Jesus as our Savior. Every one of us have to answer the question, who do you say I am? And if you say that you are the Son of God, Jesus, then it means that we must be willing to sell all of our lives to pursue him, to deny ourselves, to carry our cross, to serve. That is a follower of Christ. And there is a way that we are to live that acknowledges that there is a judgment in front of us that should inform the way that we treat others and create urgency in our life to kill whatever is impeding us to looking more and more like Jesus. And so the message of today is simple. With eternity in mind, be careful of how you live this life and be careful of how you live together. And so the band's going to come out and, and we're going to sing one last song of worship to our king. And so look, I, I don't know where you're at. I just want to appeal to you to take this time to really focus on the Lord. If there are things that you are not cutting off, that you are not getting rid of, that you're presenting yourself as being a slave to sin, that it's domineering over you, it's time that you cut it off. And you can only cut it off by confessing. Confessing to the Lord and seeking repentance for what you've done and acting out against the God of the universe. And so I invite you to confess to the Lord, whether that means coming up here and praying to the team. But listen, we are to bring what is dark out into the light. 
If you think that confessing your sin is just going, I can confess it to God and it's not going to go anywhere, then I'm telling you, you're not walking wisely. I've heard somebody say, a pastor says, I know my people will believe the gospel that I'm preaching when they're confessing their sins to one another. We are family. If you think somebody is shocked that you're a sinner, you're believing the lies of an enemy that wants to destroy and kill you. We are free of guilt and shame by the grace and love of the mercy of Christ. We don't live in condemnation. And so we can confess our sins knowing, look, I am, I'm falling short of God's mercy. But he's all I need. He's all that I want. And so today I invite you to confess to the Lord. And if that means that you need to stop somebody and confess and say, I need help with this. If that means you need to see me and say, I need help with this. If that means you need to find an elder, then do it. We want to see you walk in freedom. So let's join together and sing one last song to our Savior.